0: Hey folks, it's Nick D'Alessandro. Real quick before we get into the bonus episode, I chatted with Brigitte Stevenson, the curator of the Sanford Museum this week, and she actually has two minor clarifications about this past Monday's episode that I wanted to include before we got into the bonus episode. The first correction concerns the street names that were changed in Goldsboro back when it was absorbed into Sanford. The street was called Clark, then it was renamed Lake Avenue. I told you that it was changed back to Clark Avenue in 2013, but it was actually changed to Historic. Goldsboro Boulevard, honoring the original town itself, not just the founder. The other correction, in a similar vein, concerns what exactly Forest Lake incorporated into the city in that one movement. When the city of Sanford forcibly annexed Goldsboro, they also took in the town of Sanford Heights. In the episode, I told you that Georgetown was also forced in at the same time, but they were actually a part of the city of Sanford already. They were not forcibly annexed during the same time as Goldsboro and Sanford Heights. Alright, that's everything. I just wanted to clarify those little details before we headed into the show. Here is the episode. Enjoy. Hey folks, I'm Nick DeLisandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is a bonus episode, a special treat that I couldn't just let pass me by. You see, for this past Monday's episode, I visited the Sanford Museum and spent nearly three hours strolling its rooms with my host, the curator of the Sanford Museum, Brigitte Stevenson. Brigitte and I had such a blast talking, exploring each and every corner of the museum in extensive detail. And I couldn't just let our conversation go unreleased. By the end of the tour, I was stunned by the sheer amount of historical persons, events, and facts that are connected to this little city by the St. Johns River. And somehow, just as stunning as the facts connected to the city is the story of how the Sanford Museum itself came to be. So, all that and more in this bonus episode A Walk Through the Sanford Museum. It was a clear day when I arrived to downtown Sanford, Lake Monroe's blue waters behind the museum, the orange facade shining in the sun. At the top of the exterior pillars of the museum are bundles of green celery cast in stone, a bright, almost fluorescent green that really catches the eye. Brigitte met me at the door. The museum is open nowadays, masks required of course, even while they finish a few renovations throughout. The lobby of the museum actually is home to the original exterior of the museum, a Greek-style entrance with four white pillars. That building would not exist without the help of Corolla Sanford-Dow, daughter of the town's founder, Henry Sanford. She led to the creation of this museum in the first place. Brigitte tells the tale.
1: The museum had a little bit of a stumbling block. Um, so Carola came down here in the 30s. And everyone's like who are you and she's like i'm the town founder's daughter they're like who who's our town founder again
0: remember henry sanford basically never came to the town that bore his name so no one really knew who he was he was just the guy that put up the money so Corolla goes about forming this museum but discovers that all the sanford family archives are not actually in her family's possession they're in the connecticut historical society's archives that is because two of her sisters, both struggling with mental illness, essentially threw all these documents to the Historical Society and retreated to the house where they lived together.
1: Frida and Willie were like, would live together in like the old family house in Connecticut. And they were like the crazy bird ladies of Derby, Connecticut. Oh, great. Uh, No, I've had people from Derby be like, oh, I remember them. They would pay you in the depression 30 cents to build a bird house because they would have all these birds everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what? These
0: were the crazy bird women.
1: Yeah, very like Grey Gardens-esque.
0: Yes, very Grey Gardens. <laughs> and despite all this, Corolla was able to successfully get the documents out of the Historical Society and donated them to the city. The museum itself would officially open in 1957. Today, they house a few permanent exhibits alongside an active research library where residents of Sanford and historians come in to inquire to housing records or death records, or even just in search of specific context for something they are researching. While we were getting started on our tour, in fact, a man came in to share research that he had gathered with Brigitte, who gladly took a few moments to chat about his discovery. More often than not, people are coming specifically to look into the files of Henry Sanford himself. His story is so manic and fascinating and stretches to so many elements of international history. Brigitte is, admittedly, a huge fan of telling Sanford's personal story. She studied European history in college and knows huge amounts of Henry Sanford's story just off the top of her head. We followed his timeline from birth to death, as well as the legacies of his children, and Brigitte knew each and every detail of those stories by heart. If you are in Sanford and you get a chance to chat with Brigitte about Henry Sanford, I cannot recommend it enough. It is a fascinating tale. Two of the larger rooms in the museum explore Sanford's legacy, and the room directly behind the front desk actually holds Sanford's book collection. Most of it is a bizarre collection of penal codes, and Brigitte actually says that it's likely most of this collection was just for show. We
1: get a question sometimes. Hey, do you know Henry Sanford? read all of his books. We know for a fact, now, because back in the past, you actually have to, used to rip the pages. So they would be folded in half and then you would rip it to flip the next page.
0: So um, all the books are still...
1: Yeah, those books we know, they're still folded like you can. Wow. <laughs> so you still have to rip it open to turn the page. Goodness
0: So gracious.
1: this was of course done in a way to be like, look at how educated and expensive like money I have.
0: I'm smart. But, as I was saying, Sanford's collection of notes and records are really observed in two different historical research communities. If you are a European historian, you've come for the diplomatic work Sanford did for much of his life. But if you're an African historian, you're coming to explore Sanford's problematic relationship with the Congo. Either way, there is much to be discovered in the Sanford Museum's collection. But the building itself is not all Sanford the man and his bizarre life story. It's also Sanford the town and the incredible characters that passed through its streets. And to be perfectly honest with you, it's hard to know where to start because of the sheer density of stories packed into this town, so I'll start at the beginning. Right through the front doors of the museum, to the left, is the main exhibit, a comprehensive collection of Sanford artifacts. Stepping right through the door, there's a huge sign that was once at the entrance to the local drive-in, Movie Land.
1: Yeah, it used to be in like a red kind of recessed thing, and then it had neon lights. Uh, but this was for the old drive through The last movie was done sometime in the 90s. But everybody has a memory of it. Our our funniest problem, though, is we haven't had somebody tell us an accurate thing of like how you entered in because everybody would sneak in the back of the car and try to hide so they didn't have to pay. (laughs) That's
0: funny. So So nobody knows that's so funny.
1: I mean, we've we've had like pictures and stuff of it, but like people are like, oh, yeah, like we would hide from like the ticket in the concession. Um, because we didn't want to pay, so that's one of those interesting things of how history can be lost.
0: There's also an entire glass cabinet filled from top to bottom with celery-related objects, from specific celery dishes to artwork of smiling stalks of celery. Across from the celery exhibit are two lead cylinders, original plates used to make newspapers in years past. They would melt down these rolls every week and craft up new ones. Around the corner there's a wall with old celery crate art. You've certainly seen famous citrus crate art with beautiful natural depictions and flashy text. Well, the celery crates bore the same aesthetic except for the leafy green product. Along the back wall, there's a segment dedicated to the Second Seminole War, which Brigitte reminds me is one of the costliest wars in American history. Its connection to Sanford is incredible. The famous leader from the Seminoles during the war, Osceola, was actually captured at the end of the war on the orders of General Thomas Jessup. His name is now on Lake Jessup, which is the largest lake in Seminole County, and is just a stone's throw from downtown Sanford. And then there's the sword. At the bottom of the case dedicated to the Second Seminole War, there's a long wooden box with an old metal sword exposed within. Rusty at some points with its hilt crumbling, it immediately catches my eye. What makes it even more interesting is its lack of signage. Brigitte calls it the mystery sword
1: that's our mystery sword you
0: don't know what that is
1: so we know it's a sword um the debate is whether or not it is from the second summer wars or it's from the american civil war because it's such a bad condition we've had so many people that's like the it's definitely one of our our artifacts that we get like if you're interested like you go to it straight away i've tried to take pictures of it and that sort of thing it's just like deteriorating poor thing and we're trying our best to kind of keep it keep it right but there's We've tried to find hallmarks and stuff that would indicate whether or not because there were very similar styles of sabers.
0: The entire handle, the hilt being just deteriorated is so interesting.
1: Yeah. And you can see how it's like smushed in. Um, Wow. So the question is, was somebody, you know, whacking some weeds trying to create a trail here off of Celery Avenue and they dropped it? Or was it like, you know, (laughs) So, Grandpa brought his old Civil War That's sword, exactly right. and, he's like, and he was like, doing the some same thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And like, who knows?
0: Right next to the sword is a massive plank of wood, stretching the entire length of the wall. It is the bottom of an ancient canoe. Brigitte notes that it is the oldest thing in their collection alongside some ancient tools. Back around the corner, there's a picture of a brewer.
1: But Joseph Zapp, I like to joke, is our original craft brewer.
0: If you've never visited Sanford, the eastern edge of downtown is literally filled to the brim with microbreweries. I hope to give them a visit once things feel safe, but brewing has a long history in Sanford, and that history begins with Joseph Zapf.
1: He was an immigrant from Germany. He he came down here, had his his own store, and he actually worked for Anheuser Busch. And we had an Anheuser Busch plant that made beer here. So I think people would be upset to find out our first craft beer was Anheuser-Busch. Budweiser, that's <laughs> like right Budweiser.
0: Next to an original beer bottle from the era, there's a photo of Joseph Zaff underneath icicles hanging from his store awning.
1: It's frozen. This is from the freeze. it's the
0: freeze, because it's February Yeah, that's the
1: one reason why we have these pictures. So sometimes you have to remember, why is a photo being taken? So sometimes it's the context of like, oh my god, I'm here for the building and the person. Right. But everybody would have known that it's because in this case, it's the freeze. So you see the icicles and everybody's in shock. And there was a drinking fountain that we have another picture of that was close by that's completely frozen and everybody's in their winter coats.
0: We've talked about that before, how history is actually preserved, how difficult that is. The context of why something is recorded is important, and that photo in that little glass case is a perfect example of that. Moving deeper into the main exhibit, you're met with cabinet after cabinet of fascinating little nuggets of history. There's a whole cabinet dedicated to the historically large Swedish immigrant population in town. There's collected artifacts from Seminole High School, including old yearbooks. There's model trains from the various types of engines and lines that once passed through town. There's items used in a local TV magician's act from back in the day and there's an old book written by a local named Sam Berg, at the time it was written became a huge point of controversy in town due to all the exposed gossip contained within. There's even a section dedicated to Charlie Carlson. If you don't know the name, you've definitely seen his book, Weird Florida. You can find it all over the Florida section in every bookstore in the state. He was born in Sanford, he wrote that book, and he popularized a lot of the wilder elements of our state at a national level during his lifetime. Perhaps one of his most lasting impacts on my life is his connection to the I-4 dead zone. It's one of my favorite ghost stories. The tale goes that over a century ago, a family of settlers died of yellow fever and were buried just outside of Sanford. They built the interstate many years later over the area, and to this very day you can see spectral figures standing on the bridge that passes over the water. Sometimes your radio may short out. That happened to me. But it turns out Charlie Carlson was a descendant of the family buried there, and, well, I'll let Brigitte tell her version of the story.
1: So, here's the thing. From what we can tell from the sources, he is a descendant of the Hawkins family. There was always a family story that there was a cemetery there. So here are the facts that we do know. We have a map that was given to us by him of that area, and that there was something that, like, for for. Cemetery, Like, not cemetery, but just four bodies buried sure. here. After that, we don't really know um, anything else. The whole mythos of that, we do know Charlie Carlson was unbelievably upset that I-4 was going to go through the community of Lake Monroe. Oh, you really? actually see him writing to different groups, being like, I think people are buried here, but they still built it. And then all of a sudden you start getting these stories of, oh, it's haunted that patch because... Oh no! So.
0: Make of that what you will, but that has somehow elevated a story that I already loved. An even more famous Florida writer actually lived here at some point. You definitely know the name. She's one of my favorite authors of all time. Zora Neale Hurston.
1: But Zora Neale Hurston, she lived here, she hated it. Um, that's that's kind of one of the things that's like the joke, like she hated it here. Like her stepmother was from here. She hated her stepmother. Her dad, you know, was a pastor I here. Love like, her just, so just just much. like she did not like it. Zora is my number one. But she, one. <laughs> she was productive here. She wrote two books here. Uh, she really? Yeah, she wrote really *Jonas Gortin Gort, Vine* and *Mules and Men* here.
0: That is easily one of my favorite Zora books, *Mules and Men*, and it was written in Sanford in a house that still stands. There's also the Sanford Naval Air Station, though it has been converted into the Sanford Airport. Nowadays, I can see the planes from their flight school zooming overhead while I work on the show. This station was so important to the city during World War II, as were all the naval stations in Florida. Brigitte tells me a vast majority of Navy pilots during the Second World War were trained in the various stations around Florida. It was also a big treat for the women of Sanford around this time as these handsome navy men were living and working in their town. According to Brigitte, some would get married and move north, only to retire back in Sanford where their romance began. And the mystery sword from a few minutes ago isn't the only important blade in the museum's collection.
1: General Joseph Hutchison, he's also a hugely important person. The Battle of Mindanao, he was the general there, and he had the surrender of Morizumi give up his sword. We actually have in our collection, um, the sword of Morizumi um, in, our, uh, in our collection. Oh, wow. The question is whether or not it's actually Morizumi, because they used to be the whole thing with the family sword and that sort of thing, right. and you have near the end of the word they're taking other swords and giving right, it because like they
0: know it's coming to an end they yeah don't want to give up their family exactly barely. and so
1: it's one of those things that we've had the debate uh, that we eventually want to kind of find more information out about it kind of make it a project I and then see if, if we can return it to the family
0: they are still debating what exactly is the ethical thing to do with this sword and whether or not returning it is the respectful thing to do it's an amazing fascinating little ethical knot one i will ponder for a long time In the sports section, there's a case dedicated to Jackie Robinson, which we talked about last week, as well as a whole wall dedicated to Tim Raines, the Hall of Fame left fielder who was born and raised right here in Sanford. There's an old building called the Mayfair Inn currently being remodeled, which once housed the farm teams for the New York Giants when they came for spring training. It was actually owned by the New York Giants owner back in the day. There's a series of cases dedicated to a whole family of athletes who played in the NFL, all from Sanford. And there's a little placard dedicated to Bundini Brown, the trainer that coached the champ, Muhammad Ali.
1: We have Bundini Brown. Uh, he was Muhammad Ali's trainer. He was from Sanford, and he is actually the one who came up the term float like a butterfly, sting like a bee from Muhammad Ali.
0: This is, this yeah. is insanity. Exactly. This is insanity. <laughs> I think you can hear it in my voice in that clip how dumbstruck I am. I had been hit minute after minute with staggering facts about Sanford one after another, each more incredible than the last. Brigitte is an amazing tour guide connecting each little thread together, but this moment was the one that really blew me away. I'm not sure why learning Muhammad Ali's trainer was from Sanford was such an important moment for me, but it was. We would spend another hour in the exhibit dedicated to Henry Sanford himself, but my mind was, and still is, reeling from everything that Sanford holds within its legacy. To that end, Sanford Museum is a steward to all that. It's maybe why I love all museums so much. You can go to this little spot dedicated to a specific town or a specific person, And all it is is a celebration of that thing, from the most tiny little details that some would consider insignificant to the incredible world-shattering facts. Yes, there were trains that came through here, and there was a naval air station, and there's all these little tales of movie land and people sneaking in through the back, and also some of the most important people in American culture were influenced by Sanford. We would not have Float Like a Butterfly, Sting Like a Bee, if it wasn't for Sanford's own Bundini Brown. Can you imagine that? It started here. That is amazing. And that is just a small sampling of the things that are inside of the Sanford Museum. I didn't even tell you about the record studio that was produced in someone's house. I didn't even tell you about all of the artifacts that they have in a glass case. We didn't even go into all of the things that Henry Sanford is connected to. There is just so much in this little building, and it's free to visit. And if you go, please say hello to Brigitte Stevenson. She is the best tour guide there is. I am looking forward to visiting the Sanford Museum again soon, and to hopefully doing more with them in the future. There is just so much left to unpack. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I could not resist myself making a little story about the Sanford Museum. It just was such a special trip, and I had to share more of it with you. If this is somehow your first episode, although I doubt that is the case, make sure you listen to the episode about Sanford proper. It is the 100th episode of Wait 5 Minutes After All. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a 5-star review below. It helps the show become more visible and it means the world to me. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. You can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you again to Brigitte Stevenson and the Sanford Museum. I've attached a link below so you can pay them a visit and see more of their fantastic and important work. Check them out. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Alright, next week, the story of Tampa's original football stadium, the Big Sombrero, and how it changed American culture forever. Until then, I'm Nick DeLisandro. be good to yourself, be good to others, wear a mask when you go outside, and please, drink more water. Have a good weekend.